welcome to Thank You for Toilet Paper, a history of little things, a podcast where we talk about a few things to be grateful for and the history and stories behind them. I'm your host, Elizabeth Miller. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get going. Now, where I live, we are surrounded by mountains, so I grew up knowing how to find north very easily. The mountains were north. It was only later, as I met friends from out of state, that I noticed that we were in fact residing in a valley, which meant that technically mountains were all around us. So when I would tell people to go north toward the mountains, I knew which mountains I meant, the ones in the north. But apparently, that didn't translate well. On my recent trip to visit family in North Carolina, I was very unnerved by the general flatness of the land and my inability to orient myself by the mountains and easily find north. I was surprised at how much this gnawed at me. It was just kind of like a constant white noise in the background that I didn't know where I was relative to everything around me. Not that I've ever really been lost in the woods, and my only chance for survival was to go north, and my ability to identify which specific mountains are in the north was the key information that saved my life. This has not happened, but if it did, I could totally do it, as long as I was not in North Carolina. So today, we're going to talk about a little tool that would allow me to find north, even in North Carolina. And that opened up the entire world to travel, navigation, trade, and new adventures. Let's talk about the compass. Before we had the compass, people still knew how to get around, but this knowledge was determined largely by reliance upon landmarks as well as constellations, which meant you had to be able to see either the sky or things around you. In China, another method of determining navigation was by taking samples of mud from the sea floor, looking at the flight patterns of birds, analyzing wind patterns, the state of the sea, and in Polynesia and elsewhere, judging the state of the sea generally was also a way to navigate. In India, in the dig site at the Indus Valley of Lothal, archaeologists have discovered what appear to be tools used to measure the angles between stars and planets. For the Norsemen, it's believed that they use a sort of sun compass to find true north and navigate. Vikings may also have used some sort of birefringence crystal to navigate. The birefringence of a crystal is the property of a crystal having a refractive index, which is how fast light travels through the material. The reason this refractive index could be used for navigation is because it depends on polarization. The Vikings could use the refracted polarized light to figure out the sun's direction as well as its elevation. Part of the reason that the compass was so important to navigation and exploration was that it allowed for navigation while the sky was dark or overcast. This was particularly important for nautical voyages and played an important role in the Age of Discovery. The first compass is believed to have been invented in China about 2,000 years ago, between the 2nd century BC and the 1st century AD. Initially, these compasses were made from naturally magnetized stones called lodestones, which were made of iron. These compasses were made during the Han Dynasty. The original name for the compass was the South Pointing Fish. Before these compasses were used for navigation, however, they were used to tell fortunes and were also used as a method of divination called geomancy. Early compasses may also have been used to help order houses in a way that aligned with feng shui, which harmonized buildings using geomantic principles. These early compasses and their geomantic properties were used to decide where to build buildings, plant fields, or even search for precious stones. Later in the Song Dynasty, Shen Kyo, 
describes usage of the compass for the purpose of navigation. The compass began to be used for navigation in China sometime between the 9th and 11th centuries. It was first used in the military and then some years later for maritime navigation at sea. Typically, the compasses used in China were made of a magnetic needle in water, although they also had occasionally used dry compasses as well. The dry compass was made of a wooden turtle hung upside down by a board with a lodestone held down by wax. If twisted, the needle at the turtle's tail would point north. The first recorded use in China of a mariner's 48-point compass is recorded in 1296. There has also, however, been discovery of a Mesoamerican artifact dated back to between 1400 and 1000 BC, an Olmec hematite artifact that could have been used for geomancy. If this proves to be accurate, it could predate Chinese usage by a millennium. Croster and Co., who speculate that the artifact could have been used for geomancy or astrological purposes, although it's not been suggested that it was used for navigation, they were the ones who made the discovery. The discovery and speculation are, however, very disputed, as others believe that the grooves in the hematite artifact are in fact simply ornamental. The first recorded use of a compass in Europe is in 1190, while the first recorded mention in the Muslim world is in 1232. There is some disputation here as well as to whether or not Arab travelers and tradesmen brought the compass from China to Europe, or whether it came from China to Europe through crusaders. Between 1187 and 1202, Alexander Neckham recorded a use of magnets when crossing the English Channel. Neckham's mention of the compass, as well as Jacques de Vietre's mention in 1218, has caused some to question whether or not the compass was invented in Europe independent of the Chinese compass. The introduction of the compass in the latter part of the 13th century allowed for a greater time period of travel. Previously, most seafaring travel stopped by October and started again in April, because the winter months left for cloudy skies and made it difficult for sailors to navigate. But with the compass, sailors were able to travel again as early as January and didn't stop until December. This opened up further trading routes. The compass wasn't the only instrument to allow for improvements in seafaring navigation, however. The Portland charts, as well as improvements in dead reckoning, helped as well. However, other evidence found in Kreutz suggests that compass travel may have only been more common later in around 1410. So there's a lot of back and forth about the influence, the usage, and even the introduction of the compass when it comes to its history in Europe. In the Middle East, the earliest reference to a compass is found in 1232 in a tale book that describes the use of a compass to navigate the Persian Gulf or in the Red Sea. This first account records the compass in a fish shape, referencing the style used in China. A needle compass was first described in a later account in 1282 in Cairo. Although the author, Belak al-Kibjaki, describes a trip taken in 1242 and further describes having actually seen a compass about 40 years earlier in his own life. In the 13th century, an astronomer and Yemeni sultan named al-Malik al-Ashraf describes in detail how to make a compass and explains how to find north, the meridian, and the Qibla, which is the direction toward the Kaaba, the sacred mosque in Mecca. Later, in the 14th century, a Syrian timekeeper and astronomer invented a device that was a combination of a timekeeper, a sundial, and a magnetized compass for the purpose of finding the times for prayer. His name was Ibn al-Shatir. 
Around the same time, Arab navigators made the 32-point rose for the compass as well. In India, the compass likely originated from the Chinese compass as well. There is mention of a fish compass in the Tamil nautical books in the 4th century AD. These fish compasses would float in a bowl of oil. There is evidence that the compass traveled from China to East Africa along the silk trading routes. There is also evidence of compasses showing up for navigation in Somalia and Swahili state kingdoms. So how does it work? A compass is a magnetometer. Oh yes, that, a magnetometer. Last week's word of the day, right? It wasn't for me, so I had to look it up. A magnetometer basically measures the surrounding magnetic field or magnetic diplo moment. This includes the magnetic strength and orientation. A magnetometer measures the direction, strength, or change in the magnetic field. A compass is one example of a magnetometer, while other examples measure the magnetic diplo moment of materials like the ferromagnet. The first magnetometer that was able to measure magnetic intensity at a specific point in space was invented by Carl Friedrich Gauss in 1833. For the dry compass, there are three main elements, a pivoting needle on a pin, a wind rose or compass card, and all of this was kept in a small or enclosed box with a glass cover. Although there are numerous records of these compass boxes throughout history, the credit for the perfected version that sailors came to use is given to an Italian pilot named Flavio Gioia. There are a few other compasses as well, a bearing compass, which allows one to get the bearing of an object by lining them up with the luber line. There is also the surveyor's compass, which allows the user to accurately get the heading of landmarks and measure them. This helps with the process of making maps. In 1885, a patent was filed for the handheld compass with a viewing prism. This allowed the user to cite the headings of geographical landmarks. This became the prismatic compass. In 1902, the bizarre compass used a mirror to also help accurately measure, which allowed for the user to cite the bearing while still looking at the object with the compass. In 1928, a Swedish instrument maker named Gunnar Tillander improved upon the compass. Based on his passion for orienteering, he created one that included a protractor on the device. He took his device to others and they formed the Silva Company, manufacturing the Silva Orienteering Compass. These days, a popular compass is the Liquid Compass. This compass keeps the needle and card safe from wear and tear, as well as wobble, by suspending both in liquid. A model of this type of compass was introduced by Sir Edmund Haley in 1690 at a Royal Society meeting. In the beginning, however, early models were too cumbersome to carry around easily and were mostly only useful on ships for navigation, as they weren't as susceptible to the roll, pitch, and yaw of the ship or just the general disruption of the waves. The first most practical example of a mariner's liquid compass was patented by an Englishman named Francis Crow in 1813. Later, Edward Samuel Ritchie, an American, made improvements to the liquid compass, but the liquid compass was not made standard use by the Royal Navy until 1908. Next, compasses took to the sky. Captain F.O. Craig Osborne introduced his Craig Osborne compass into aircraft in 1909. The liquid inside his compass was a mixture of alcohol and distilled water. He also patented a smaller version for pocket use in 1915. In 1931, the Silva Company was back at it with improvements in the compass. Their needle only took four seconds to settle on a direction, whereas previous models took about 30 seconds. In 1933, Thomas Volonen introduced the compass that eventually developed into the compasses that we still use today. These days, compasses have many uses beyond navigating the sea. 
the sky, and the land. Compasses are also used in astronomy, building orientation, mining, and as sun compasses. Wherever we may be, these devices seem capable of helping us to find our way, be it to new adventures or back home. I'm grateful for the journeys these compasses take us on. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining me and listening, and I hope you have a marvelous day full of adventures that lead you to where you want to go. Thank you.